First John chapter 3. We are almost through probably one of the most challenging chapters of the entire Bible. John has been teaching us in chapter 3 that God's children are known by their obedience and the devil's children are known by their disobedience. And one of the most important of God's commands that we have in His Word is to love one another. And what John had explained to us is that command must never be up for debate. That command in our lives, in our hearts, must never be something that's up for debate. When it comes to how, though, we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, John hasn't explained to us how to do that. He's only told us not how not to do it. He said, don't do it like Cain. Don't do it like the world loves. So how do we do it? Well, we're going to pick it up in verse 16 today where John explains to us how to live out this serious command. So I'm going to start reading in verse 11, but we'll pick our study up in verse 16. Verse 11, he says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We, on the other hand, not like the world, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that does not love his brother abides, as that word that John's been using makes his home still in death, and that you're still in death. And whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, hereby do we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So, John starts off here in verse 16 by giving love a tangible definition. He says, hereby perceive we the love of God. The word perceive here means to gain knowledge by experience. Now, the phrase of God is not in the original text. So, the way this should be translated is, we have gained a knowledge of this thing called love. That's what the phrase here, the, not the love of God, but just this thing called love. We have an understanding. We have gained and come to an understanding. In fact, the sentence literally reads, we have come to know this thing called love in this way. How? Because he laid down his life for us. So, what is this thing called love? I would think defining something like love would be important, don't you? Well, these days, uh, we hear lots of definitions of love. In fact, one of the most popular definitions that we hear today is that, well, love is love. Any statement that's made should be examined to see if it's true and valid. I, I shouldn't just be able to pop off and make a statement and have everyone just go, well, yes, that must be right. That's Pastor Will. Which means any statement that's made, including this one, should be examined, and we need to ask some questions about it. So, whenever you have something defined by itself, that by nature means it's self-defining. So, is love self-defining? Is, is love something that can't be qualified and just simply is? Is love either something inside of us or around us that takes hold of us to such a degree that our experience of it qualifies us now to declare, aha, this is love. Is love what I or you say it is because of our experience of it, and therefore no one can question it or codify it? Is that true? Well, I would suggest to you that that kind of definition has serious logical problems. First off, this kind of definition, if, especially if love comes from within inside of us, that's inconsistent with human nature. 
I'm certainly not self-existent. Just have a conversation with my parents and they'll let you know. I am not self-existent. I didn't create myself. And, And in addition to that, the scope of my experience in life is minuscule when you compare it to the volume of other human beings' experiences both in my time, before my time, and will come after my time. Therefore, in light of that, it would be the height of arrogance to claim that the definition of love comes from my experience of life. For me just to come out and say, well, this is love based on my experience. That would be incredibly arrogant. Well, some might say, well, what if, what if there's a collective or shared experience of multiple human beings that all say the same thing? And they go, well, this is love. That's still a problem because of what about all the contradictory declarations of human beings over the course of history? Contrary to popular belief, disagreeing groups can't all be correct. We don't hear it hardly ever these days anymore, but when I was a young believer in the late 80s, early 90s, the phrase that you heard all the time was, all roads lead to heaven. Like I said, you don't hear that phrase much anymore because it's, it's illogical, it's silly, it doesn't make any sense. All roads do not lead to Calvary Chapel, Orlando. They just don't. There are maybe multiple roads you could take to get to the one road that Calvary Chapel, Orlando is on, but any road will not take you here. In fact, it will take you to many other places besides here. In the same way, all roads don't lead to heaven. So the idea is that if if you have other groups out there that disagree with you, then they all can't be correct. So you say, well, then what if we got every person to agree on this definition, though? See, the problem is, is that love is love. You other people out there who don't believe that's what love is, and that we can define love this way, it's self-defining, you're the problem. And so if you just need to get on board, and then everything will be fine. Well, what if we got every person to agree on this definition? Well, even if that were possible, which I would declare it's not, (laughs) even if it were possible, the reality is is that no human being is infallible. No human being can be 100% sure that the way they define things is 100% correct. Self-definition is by its very meaning a flawed approach because none of us are self-existent or eternal in nature. I have not always been. I did not create myself. So I am extremely limited in my processing of information. I'm not, in, I'm not infallible. I'm highly fallible. So, well, then this leaves, since love can't come from within me, that leaves the possibility that love is some power that exists outside of myself, that love could be some power outside myself that overcomes me and places me in love. In other words, it just is. It grabs hold of me, and now I'm in its grip. Well, if no one made love, and love is self-defining simply because it just is, to be honest with you, that seems a lot like describing a God to me, a self-existent being who just is. So is love some powerful entity floating in the air around us, looking to seize whomever it may, whenever it wishes, and however it deems without definition? If you want to believe that, I suppose you can. But I would argue such an idea has more in common with fiction stories and television shows and Greek mythology than it does with reality. I don't choose to believe in some essence or force out there that just seizes anyone however it wishes in any way it wishes without definition. The Bible declares that love does not come from inside of us, 
other ugly things, it says, come from inside of us. And I think you can verify that by taking just one look at society or history to prove it to be true. But the Bible does not declare that love is a self-existent, self-defining entity either. In fact, the Bible declares that there is only one being who is self-existent and self-defining, and that's the Lord. That's Him. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses comes to the burning bush and God tells him, I want you to go to, go to Pharaoh, tell him to set my people free, let my people go. And Moses is going, okay, great. But when I come to your people to explain this to them, whom shall I say has sent me? What's your name? And what does God say? I am that I am. Self-existent, self-defining. God is the only one who makes that claim. From a scriptural standpoint, He's the only one who can make that claim and back it up. None of us can say, well, I just am. Whether you believe it was your parents who brought you into existence, or fate that brought you into existence, or a deity that brought you into existence, every human being had a creator. But not every being had a creator. God did not have a creator. God had no creator, and He is the creator of everything, including love. Now, love is not God. That would be a wrong way to understand it. But John does tell us in chapter 4 of 1 John, we'll get to it sometime in 2028, he does tell us that God is love. In other words, God just is, but He is not undefinable. God explains Himself to us by many terms, and one of that is that His very essence is His being, His personality his way of interacting with creation is love. But love, of course, cannot just be. It's a verb, and therefore it must refer to behavior or action of some sort. And so this is what believers have come to know about this thing called love. God acted, and it tells us here, John tells us here, we hereby, we have come to know this thing called love because He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. You see, John is defining this thing called love for us through sacrifice. He laid down. The word, it means to take something off like clothing. Now, Jesus explained. He said the thief in John 10, verse 10 and 11, a thief comes, but just for three things, to steal, kill, and destroy, right? And he said, but I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And then in the very next verse, he explains how he's going to give us this life. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So God defined love for us. He explained love to us by living it out so we could observe it. We could look at it. We could monitor it and understand exactly what it is. And so our example of love is Jesus taking something that belonged to him and then taking it off like clothes, laying it aside for us. And the thing that Jesus laid aside is something that human beings value more than anything else, our own lives. Our own lives. And so in light of Jesus' example, we define, we can define love by sacrifice. Love is inherently about others. It's not, it's not a thing I feel, it's a thing that is about others. Love is inherently not about what, what I'm experiencing or feeling, but it's about others. Now, being concerned with others, sacrificing for others, requires a denial of self, right? Therefore, love has nothing to do with how I feel or even what I want. 
Love is an attitude and a behavior that lays aside my own wants, my own resources, my own perception of what I deserve, and at times even my own survival instincts lays all that down for the benefit of someone else. Love leaves comfort, safety, and as Jesus did, even the perfect environment to walk into difficulty, pain, and unfairness in order to benefit someone else. Now, with that as our standard of this thing called love, God's command for us to love one another comes more into focus. And so He says at the end of verse 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This word ought, it's a very powerful word. It means to be under obligation to make a payment as the result of having previously received something of value. You see, loving other people, loving one another, the brothers and sisters we have in Christ, it's founded upon my understanding of how much God has loved me. It's founded upon the concept of how much God's done for me, that I do have a debt I could never repay. You see, loving a brother or sister in Christ is never to be on the basis of, well, they deserve it, or, well, they're easy, or, well, I like them. Loving a brother or sister in Christ is to be done on the basis that Jesus deserves it because of what He did for me. John will later say in chapter 4, we love Him because He first loved us. But it is also equally true that we love others sacrificially because He first loved us sacrificially. Amen? In John chapter 15, verses 12 and 15, after Jesus had washed their feet, you know, and had spoken words to them about the fact that He was going to die, He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Harry Ironside said this, as a Christian, that which was manifested in Christ must be manifested in you. You must be willing to lay down your life for others, to endure any kind of hardship in order that you may help and bless others. It's what a believer does. Now, John lays out this concept of, because Christ did this, this is how we understand love, so that's how we love each other. But God will not call most of us to literally take a bullet in service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I dare say none of us here face such a choice in our daily lives. But the truth is, neither did most of the people that John was writing to back then. Some of the people were experiencing persecution, or maybe they had to protect a brother or sister and put their own life on the line, but most of them weren't experiencing that. In fact, love most often does not show itself in great actions or great sacrifices. And so when John gives us an example of this love in, in verse 17, he shows us what everyday life sacrificial love looks like. Look at verse 17. He says, but whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? He is a practical example here where he takes two believers, all right? He says, first off, we got a believer, he says, who has this world's good. The phrase, this world's good, it means the means to secure the necessities of life. John's referring to someone who has a regular source of income or a regular source of provision. So, we've got one brother who's in that, in that boat. And if that guy, that brother, sees 
his brother have need. Now, the, the brother, second brother here, it literally means having need, which means he's regularly lacking the necessities of life. So you got one brother who's got a regular means to provide for his necessities, and you got another brother who's regularly lacking what he needs. And if the brother who has all the things that he needs, in other words, he's got a regular source of his needs being met, and he sees the brother who's regularly not having his needs met. The word there, to see, it's not just that, well, you, you, you drive by him and you notice, or maybe you know, he could use some better shoes, but it means to be a spectator. It means you're observing this with continuity and attention. You know this brother is regularly struggling. He says, in this scenario where you've got these two different brothers in different situations, if the brother who is, has the means to secure the necessities of life shuts up his bowels of compassion, the word shuts up there, it means you should, if you should slam the door, snap the lock on your bowels of compassions, he says, how does the love of God dwell in that, that brother? Now, I know all of you know what I'm talking about when I say bowels of compassions, right? Like that's a phrase you use all the time. You see a brother and you go, oh, my bowels of compassions have been aroused, you know, for you. Now I'm just feeling it. I, I see you have this deep need. No, we don't use that language today. But ancient peoples considered their gut. They considered that to be the seat of their deepest emotions because you feel it here. I got news that a dear friend of mine passed away, a fellow pastor up in the Northwest. I roomed with him, his brother, and a couple other pastors. Every year we went out to the, the yearly national conference, and, and uh, it, just, it was unexpected completely. He died in his sleep, you know, and, and it was just shocking. And just, you know, I'm, I'm staring at my email because I see it come in, and, and I call his brother, my friend, and, and my, my, I just felt it right here. So because you have that kind of a visceral reaction when your, your soul is stirred, ancient peoples considered that to be where your soul resided. You see, God designed our souls to, that when we see a person suffering, it stirs up a horrible feeling inside that calls out for us to feel bad for them and want to uh, give us, a, to bring up a desire in us to alleviate their suffering. Now, while God designed our souls that way, the fall, of course, messed with our Christ-like capacity for compassion. And our repeated decisions, we can't just blame Adam and Eve, but our repeated decisions to prioritize ourselves makes our natural compassion become calloused over time and so that we become indifferent or even hostile towards those who are suffering. But when we're born again, right? When we're born again, Jesus comes to live inside of us, and He begins to change us to be more like Him. So if you've experienced that, you're born again. You, you can't just slam that door shut. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 with me. It's another time when Jesus had compassion. We read about one in our Scripture reading in Mark 6, but here in Matthew 9, Jesus again finds Himself in a situation where He sees the crowds and His hearts moved with compassion. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, it says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in all their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. I mean, he's out changing lives. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted 
That word there for fainted, it describes the idea that they were weary. Weary with life, they were tired that day. They were scattered abroad like sheep having no shepherd. And so he turns to his disciples, he says to them, the harvest truly is plenteous. There's plenty of work to be done, but the laborers are few. Pray you, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus saw people, and he was moved with compassion. We've been invited to join Jesus' team. You know, if you're born again, you're on his team. We've been invited to be his laborers in a world that needs to be taught God's word, to hear the good news of salvation, and to experience the healing and freedom that Jesus offers. Paul, in fact, he explained that this was his mission team's mentality in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, he said, listen, if we're beside ourselves, it's to God. He goes, if we're sober, it's, it's for your sake. He says, for the love of Christ compels us, it constrains us. He said, why do we do what we do? Why do we make these sacrifices? Why have we traveled so far to come bring the gospel to you or to disciple you? Why do we, we lay down our lives for you? Well, he says, if we sound like we're crazy, like no, no person would, normal person would sacrifice such things, he goes, well, we love the Lord. He said, well, no person would like be sober. They would restrict their life to, to minister to us. Why do you do that? He goes, well, Jesus loves me. He gave up everything for me. What's, what is it if he tells me to stop doing this so I can be a blessing to somebody else? He says, listen, Jesus has shown us so much love. We've experienced his changing power in our lives. So everything we do, all our service, it's, it's done in loyalty to Jesus and out of compassion for others. And so if you're regularly observing a brother who consistently lacks the necessities of life and you slam the door on the compassion of Christ that calls you to help, John says, something's wrong with your Christianity. Something's messed up with your Christianity. Back in 1 John chapter 3, at the end of the verse, 17, he says, how dwells the love of God in him? That word dwells, it's that word abide that we've been reading all throughout 1 John. It means to make your home somewhere. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it tells us that part of the blessings we have now that we're justified with God, now that we've been justified by faith, tells us we have all these awesome blessings. And at the end of verse five, it says one of the blessings is that the Holy Spirit has shed abroad God's love in our heart. Regularly experiencing God's love is a gift of God's Spirit to every believer. It's our heritage because of Christ's work on the cross which has brought us into God's family. So John says if, if God's love has made its home in you, if you're born again, that's incompatible if you've if you've got a regular means of, of income, regular means of meeting your needs, and you slam the door of your heart on a brother who's in perpetual need, there's a contradiction there. He says, in that situation, this scenario that I give you here, love will say, I will sacrifice some of what I have so that my brother has what he needs. That's what love does. Love responds to the compassion that Jesus will stir in the hearts of every born-again person. And love will act on that compassion, even though that acting costs you something. Warren Wearsby said this. He said, the test of Christian love is not in, uh, not in loud professions about loving the whole world, but in quietly helping a brother who is in need. 
If we do not even help a brother, it is not likely we would lay down our lives for the brethren. We can say, man, our church loves everybody. It's like, yeah, but can you love the one, one dude that's harder to love? Can you love that one lady that's harder to love? That's what most of us are experiencing each day. You know, most of us are not going to be called out today to go and lay our lives down for the faith, to just to be killed for our faith or to protect a brother or sister in Christ. But every one of us are probably going to encounter challenging situations with brothers and sisters at times. What do we do with that? Well, in verse 18, John explains, this is how we love correctly. He says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And I like the fact that John kind of interjects here in the midst of, to be frank with you, 1 John 3 is probably one of the most challenging chapters to a believer. He tells us, listen, if you're not obeying God, you're a child of the devil. Right? I mean, that's, that's a challenging thought, right? Like, we're not supposed to look at that and go, oh, John, you know, wow, oh, oh, John, you know, a little spicy today, you know, woo, Pastor Juan. John the Beloved. No, we're supposed to look at that and go, whoa, I need to check my heart. I need, I need to make sure I'm in the right spot. But I love that in the midst of this challenging chapter, where he's kind of laying it out. He says, my little children. It's a term of affection. You know, John uses this phrase because the, the heavy things he said in this chapter, they all stem from, they all are born out of a deep love for his fellow believers. He's not mad or frustrated with these guys that he's writing to because they fall short sometimes of loving their brothers or they get sidetracked sometimes, but he has a deep longing for them to experience everything God has for them, for them to have the joy that comes from knowing Jesus like he knows Jesus. And John, John is sharing that because that's God's heart for us. Like he was writing a letter to specific people, but God inspired it because this was God's heart towards us. So like when we read this, God's not going, do, 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 do. He's saying, listen, you're my kids. I, I love you. I'm saying this to you because I want you to be as close to me as you possibly can. I want you to know the joy from that closeness that you can have as you walk with me day by day and keep growing. And so in light of that, I would urge you this morning, don't harden your heart to, to these last words that John is going to say to us. Sometimes we can look at this and we can go, yeah, I know. But, but I think John, when he says, my little children, that's kind of one of those things. Like sometimes my kids, I'll be talking to them and their head kind of gets down. And I'll lift their head up and look them in the eye. And I'll tell them, I say, I love you. I know this is not a fun conversation. I love you though. That, we're having it because I love you. And that's kind of what John's doing here. He's like, look me in the eye. I love you. I'm not mad at you but you need to hear this. So receive what he has to say as he wraps up this section on loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. The end of verse 18, he says, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So first off, we should not love or we ought not love this way, in word, neither in tongue. Now, that's an interesting way to phrase this because what John is saying is it's possible to develop an incorrect definition of love, and as a result, an incorrect understanding of how to express love to others. He says we must never do that. 
So what is this incorrect way of defining and expressing love? Well, it's a love that's relegated to the realm of mere words. He says, don't love with a statement, a word, or with a speech. Tongue means speech. Now, John certainly is not condemning kind words or telling someone, I love you. It's when love is relegated to the realm of mere words. Love is a word thrown out really easily today without much definition sometimes. Over the course of history, humanity has sought through philosophy, the arts, religion, and even government to develop creeds for love. Love is fill in the blank. Well, John has already defined love for us. It's sacrifice. It's, it's laying down your life for someone else. So he's not talking about humanity's varied and oft-contradicting creeds on love. John is talking about the possibility that Christians might develop a creed of love that's mere words. So not only is it possible to have an incorrect definition of love and therefore have an incorrect understanding of how to express love to others, but it's possible to define love correctly but still not actually love anybody. It's possible to define love correctly but still not actually love anyone. It is possible for us to go, well, of course we love people. I mean, we recognize the truth of Scripture that we're to love one another like Jesus loved us. There, are you satisfied that we're loving Christians now? Do you guys believe in loving one another? Well, sure we do. Read our statement of faith. Right? I don't know Jesus loved me because he poked his head out of the clouds and said, I love you a whole lot. See you in 70 years. (laughs) Hope you don't die a really bad death. No. And though the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ were absolutely necessary to save us, okay, those events were not simply parts of a divine play that just needed to be acted out. The incarnation, Jesus stepping out of perfection, a perfect environment, nothing ever went wrong, stepped out of that and became a man and then died for us as that man on the cross. Those things proved something. Romans 5.8, but while we were yet sinners, what? Christ demonstrated, God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know proof that God loves you? Look at the cross. You can always know every day when you wake up and go, does God love me? Look at the cross because the answer is a big fat yes. (laughs) He loves you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not complicated. Does God love me? Yeah, he didn't stay where he was. He came to rescue me. And he said, if you'll put your trust in me and what I did on the cross, then you'll be saved, you'll be rescued. Oh yeah, I know God loves me. Jesus proved his love for us by his actions toward us. And so, our Christianity must not be that we have the right creed about love. Our love for one another must be active. And so he tells us at the end, don't love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed with deeds, and in truth with truth. This word but here is the strongest form of contrast in the Greek language. So in strong contrast to statements or speeches or declarations or press releases or blog posts, He says, let us love with deed and with truth. 
Well, what's a deed? Something that you do. But the concept of the word deed, it, it focuses on the energy or the effort involved in the deed. So the concept here is let us love by doing things that cost us something, things that require energy, they require effort. We live in a completely effortless society these days. I'm not saying that's bad in and of itself, although I, I personally think it is, but you don't need to hear about my personal opinions. We literally don't have to leave our homes, some of us, for anything. You can get your food delivered to you. You can get all sorts of stuff delivered to you. The almighty Amazon, right? Some of us now, you may work at home. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying you can literally never leave your home. There's not a whole lot of energy or effort that's necessary to be expended. He calls us to love by expending energy and effort. Loving one another, if we're going to be obedient to that, this command, it takes effort. It takes effort. Words do not take effort. People call me a mean parent. I probably am. But my kids, we don't let them say I'm sorry. We don't let them say I'm sorry. I'm sorry is, is I would say, similar to love is love. I'm sorry is a real vague definition. It could be this. I'm sorry you didn't like what I did. I'm sorry you feel the way you do about what I did. I'm sorry we have to have this conversation because I'd rather not. I'm sorry that we're involved in this heated conversation because you don't have the ability to deal with my behavior. I'm sorry, I feel bad about what I did. All those things, none of those things are actually the definition of what the Bible tells us to do, either to confess our sin to God or to one another. And so what I try to teach my kids is to say not two words. Three is better than two, so we say three words. Hardest words in the universe to say. I was wrong. I was wrong. You little tiny words. Some of you are having even difficulty mouthing them right now. <laughs> Some of you may have never said those words in all seriousness. Some of you may have never said those words. I was wrong. Loving one another takes effort. But in addition to that, he says, love also in truth. In John 17, 17, what is truth? Jesus says, sanctify them. He's praying for his disciples. Sanctify them through your truth. Thy word is truth. So the definition of truth is God's word. So not only does one, loving one another take effort, loving on one, one another can only be accomplished when we're acting in lockstep with the scriptures. So these two things, it takes energy and effort and it needs to be in lockstep with the scriptures. Now, John says this because God knows that we Christians tend to go to one extreme or to the other. For example, we, we can develop this rabid sense of taking action, but then compromise God's Word, all the while excusing it by saying, well, love does something, and you're not doing anything, and we need to do something, so let's do this. Or we develop this immovable adherence, not to Scripture, but to the ideas of Scripture. We develop this immovable adherence to the concept of a correct theology, not necessarily correct theology, but the concept of a correct theology, all the while ignoring the fact that correct theology means dying to self to live it out, not just declare it. I do believe that as we get older, we get more grumpy. So maybe this is me just being more grumpy. But I do wonder sometimes I do wonder, maybe I'm being harsh, but I do wonder. I do wonder that if, if 
we could get all the laws passed that we want. And if everybody that says and is doing crazy things right now would just go away, I wonder if the church would be satisfied with that. I wonder if that would be enough to make the church happy. That if we had this little Christian utopia where everything goes exactly like it's supposed to, that that would be enough for us. That would satisfy us. Because the way I hear some people talk, I think it would. If they, they just go to hell, you know, but, but we just need to fix our society. Sometimes I read statements. Sometimes you go to churches, you can't even find what, anything they believe. You can't find any statement of faith, but we do this, this, and this. And then you go to some, and they're like, we have a statement of faith on whether or not you can wear jeans to church. Like, do I really need to know what you think about all that stuff? Is that really required? And more often than not, I beg the question, are you even out there preaching the gospel? You're so concerned with correct theology that your theology is not anything close to correct. John tells us here to do both. Love biblically and do it by expending effort in practical ways that never compromise the truths of Scripture. With the Holy Spirit helping us, we can do that. We can be like Jesus, but we must purpose to do so. We have to decide. We must decide to spend time in God's Word so we can know what biblical love looks like. We must choose to sacrifice our time, our wishes, and our dreams to expend the energy that's required to show that love to one another. That, John tells us, is how we live out God's high standard of loving each other. And so as the, the team comes up to close us out, I ask you an important question. Are you living that kind of love out right now? Like, is that, is that how you're living your life? And if the answer is no, my question is why? 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 Like, what, what else does God have to do to convince you that it's worth it to, to give your life away? I mean, you're wonderfully loved by God, right? He loves you. He loves you tons. You belong to his family. In fact, John started off this heavy chapter by saying, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Think about that. Pay attention to that. Keep that in mind. Remember all the benefits that God has given you and embrace this life of loving one another that is the heritage of every believer. Because I, I, think, I think sometimes that's a struggle that we don't even acknowledge in our own lives. If you sit down with everybody here today and say, hey, do you believe we should love one another? Well, of course I do. The Bible says so. The Bible says we're supposed to love one another. Okay, great. But then if we ask ourselves the question of, am I willing to expend energy and effort and, and sacrifice what I would like to do with my life for a brother or sister? I think when we look at some of our decision-making, we might realize, I don't actually believe the words of Jesus who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. I don't actually believe it because I think I'm more blessed if I keep. I think I'm more blessed if I do what I want to do and, and not sacrifice my time and my energy and the effort to go minister to a brother or sister in Christ. And so as the, the team is, leads us in a song as we pray in just a minute, I want to challenge you to ask the Lord about that. So, Lord, do I believe? Do I believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive? Or maybe, maybe is that an area of rebellion in my heart? Maybe is, is that an area that I, don't, I think I have unbelief in that area. I just don't, I don't think it's worth it. 
I don't think think it's worth it to go talk to that person I don't know. I don't think it's worth it to go reach out to this person who needs help. I don't think it's worth it to sacrifice my resources or my time or my energy. Maybe maybe that might be an attitude of unbelief that's in your heart. Maybe that's why you're not doing those things. I'll leave you with a quote from Harry Ironside. He said, the most miserable people are those who are trying to get the best for themselves. Well, the happiest people are those who give the most, sacrifice the most, and lay themselves out the most for the blessing of others. There is real joy in laying down one's life for the brethren. Let's all stand. Urge John to write this letter. You inspired him to write this letter uh, because you wanted us to have assurance of our salvation. And we're going to We'll get to that next week as we finish up the chapter where John talks about how responding well to what he's saying gives us that assurance. But Lord, maybe this morning there are some of us that you would say, you don't really believe me when I say it's more blessed to give than to receive. You don't really believe me that he who seeks to lose his life will find it. And so Lord, show us if we've got maybe a principle in our heart upside down so that Lord, we would see what's going on around us and be led by your spirit that we might be those who are expending energy and effort to biblically, according to your word, reach out to one another. Show us that now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.